It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 338th episode of Awards Chatter, Hollywood Reporter's awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by Hulu's Little Fires Everywhere. For your Emmy consideration, an outstanding limited series, and all other categories. And now down to business. My guest today is one of the most talented young performers in show business. He's an actor, singer, and songwriter whose early credits include parts in the Pitch Perfect films, and on Broadway in The Book of Mormon, but who shot to stardom by originating the role of Evan Hansen, an anxious high school student who gets trapped in a dark lie, in Dear Evan Hansen, both off-Broadway from March through May 2016, and on from November 2016 through November 2017, winning an Obie for the former and a Tony for the latter. He was and remains the youngest ever solo winner of the Best Actor in a Musical Tony. And he also won a Grammy for the show's original cast album and a Daytime Emmy for the company's performance of the song You Will Be Found on the Today Show. In 2017, he was chosen as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World and also signed with Atlantic Records, which in March 2019 released his debut studio album, Sing to Me Instead. In 2018, he signed on to star on Ryan Murphy's Netflix comedy series, The Politician, and has portrayed a politically ambitious young man on that show for two seasons now, the second of which dropped on June 19th. And in 2019, he gave a sold-out concert at Radio City Music Hall that was made into a Netflix variety special, Ben Platt, live from Radio City Music Hall, which dropped on the platform on May 20th of this year. I'm talking, of course, about Ben Platt. Over the course of our conversation, the 26-year-old and I discussed how Dear Evan Hansen came into his life and how he endured the physical and emotional demands of the project for as long as he did, how, with the success of Dear Evan Hansen, he was finally able to put to rest murmurs about nepotism that had previously followed him because his father, with whom he is very close, is the Broadway and Hollywood producer Mark Platt. Why, post-Dear Evan Hansen, he so enjoyed getting to play a very different sort of character on The Politician and to sing his own songs, both on his album and at Radio City. Where things stand with the widely rumored big screen adaptation of Dear Evan Hansen, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ben, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to see you, albeit under these kind of weird circumstances. Likewise. How are you holding up? I, I, I guess, what's where are you? What are you up to? I'm, I'm doing all right. You know, I'm very fortunate in that I am with my parents in our home we grew up in in LA sleeping in my childhood bedroom and reverting slowly to my teenage self and you know <laughs> eating cereal and playing video games and no but I it's been really nice to be home with the family usually I'm the only New York holdout and as soon as this all started I kind of hightailed it here to be with everybody and so the one nice byproduct of this obviously terrible you know ordeal that everybody's dealing with is that I, I have this kind of chunk of quality time that I don't think I would have had otherwise with all my siblings and with my parents. So that's been nice. And I guess, uh, you know, we, we traditionally begin this podcast with a question that we'll deal with. Where were you born and raised and what, are you, what did your folks do for a living? I know that your answer may be a little more interesting than most. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about interesting, maybe, maybe relevant. So yeah, I grew up here in Los Angeles uh, in Westwood with my parents and my four siblings. I'm number four out of five. And now the older three are all, you know, well, the older two are married with kids. The third is about to get married. And then there's me and my little brother. And my father is a producer. He's a, a film producer, theater producer, been in the entertainment business for a really long time. He was an executive for a while, studio head, an entertainment lawyer. He's kind of run the gambit. Um, and my mother is a really active uh, philanthropist, particularly uh, in terms of Judaism with the Jewish Federation. And she's a trustee at the University of Pennsylvania. And she's chaired the women's campaign for the Jewish Federation for quite some time. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the the amalgam of those two things sort of explains my upbringing. <laughs> that's that's great, and uh, I just have to quickly mention I had the fun of somehow winding up seated next to your dad at the Golden Globes the year of Mary Poppins Returns, the oh, year wow. before you were there as a nominee. So we had a lot of fun catching up, and he he was right. He said Ben is going to be here next year, and uh, there there we were. So he's, uh, he's got a good year for those things. <laughs> yes, uh, I want to ask you about something you've talked about sort of, uh, you did it most recently in the great Netflix special that captured your Radio City performance. And I think you've you've talked about it a lot because maybe partly because you've often played characters who share this attribute, but you've said you grew up with very bad anxiety. And I know that mm -hmm. it's interesting that a lot of our guests have said that and then wound up in a profession where they <laughs> subject themselves to uh, the judgment of others and sort of being in front of others. So why from as young as six, would a kid who's got that sort of, I don't know if, what, what you would call it, just, I guess, natural disposition, why would you want to put yourself in front of audiences as early as six? It's an excellent question. You know, I think it's, anxiety manifests differently for anybody that deals with it, and I can only speak for myself, but I've always found that my biggest challenge is is getting outside my own head. I find that my anxiety forces me to overthink things or pre, pres presume things or preempt things and it really keeps me from living in the moment and that's when it's at its worst is when I can't get out of the worries in my mind and just be where I am and allow the other people around me to affect me in a positive way and from a very early age I realized that my kind of loophole my way out of that or my the most effective way for me to force myself out of my mind was to be on stage and to be in front of people and to be 
not only just because I was transforming into other people, because now I obviously get to also play myself and it still has the same effect, but just because your responsibility becomes so much more holding the audience than holding yourself and you get to, you get to be somewhat out of body, you know, obviously there's an amount of focus that's necessary and it's a really, uh, obviously it's an active mental experience, but you don't really have time for the worry and for the overthinking and for the kind of repetitive thinking when you're out there kind of having to fly and do and do what you're doing. And so for me, it's been like the greatest gift, greatest escape uh, and, and greatest, greatest really kind of medicine for me. I mean, obviously, I, I've been medicated at different times in life in a really you know positive way that a lot of people do need to be. And there's a lot of other therapies that are a lot more practical. But uh, for me personally, it's been a wonderful way to force myself out of my mind to, to be in front of people live. So talk about, if you would, just, you know, how did you just get into singing and dancing and theater at the, at as young an age as six in the same way that most kids do? Or was it uh, the fact that you had sort of, I know, a very theatrical, musically theatrical family, right? That was part of it. Certainly. I think the interest came from the fact that it was what I shared with my parents and my siblings is that we all loved cast albums and we loved singing and doing musicals in the backyard. And that was part of the culture of my family. So that was my introduction to it. And I started doing like a, a little kids youth community theater kind of thing program when I was six years old, the same one that all three of my older siblings had done before me. So I kind of was born into it in the sense that it was always going to be a hobby of mine. But I think very quickly it became clear to me and to my family and everyone around me that it was more than that for me and that it, it became the place where I came the most alive and felt the most comfortable and, and spoke out the most and was the most myself. And I think that's why, you know, almost immediately at nine years old, I, I felt the need to start working and, 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 and doing regional theater and be, making it more of a life than, than a hobby. But certainly I was really lucky to be born into the culture of it. Well, and yeah, and, and I am not in any way, I know that certainly pre-Evan Hansen, you were hearing questions about, I, w I wasn't alluding to any kind of nepotism, but I know that you, you, you did have to respond to that up until everyone saw that you clearly earned your place in this in this world. But was that tough to hear growing up? Of course, of course. You know, I think it's it's one uh, aspect of, of a many faceted privilege that I have. And of course, now more than ever in this current moment, we're learning all the ways in which that privilege manifests. And just by virtue of being white, I have a huge amount of privilege by virtue of having, you know, money growing up supported and in a home that, you know, could fit me in it. And I was always, you know, had food. And, and then on top of that, of course, I, you know, have a father who's doing what I want to do and is involved in the world that I want to be involved in. And, and uh, you know, I would be completely disingenuous to sit here and say that, you know, I, I learned nothing from him. I gained no knowledge, no leg up, no, you know, no insight. But of course, you know, I always wanted to be conscious of making sure that I was making my own way, like you said, laying my own foundation. And my father's always been very supportive of giving me the space to do that. And, you know, of the multitude of beautiful things about Evan Hansen, one of the most beautiful was that it really put that conversation to bed and allowed me to show that, you know, on my own two feet, I, I have a lot to offer. And, and, and it's really opened the door for us now to get to collaborate in a way that uh, we get to both come to it on our own. And, you know, I will do it in a situation where I'm the right man for the job and he's the right man for the job. And I think that's the only way we really knew we'd be able to. And, and we're looking forward to the time when that was going to be possible. But, but yes, I certainly have always wanted to make sure that, that my path was forged by, by me. And I'm happy to say that that's been done. Absolutely. Well, like a lot of Jewish young people, your summers, I think, were very formative for you because <laughs> I gather you you uh, went and uh, to the what I guess you could almost call it a chain of Jewish summer camps called Camp Ramah. And it seems like from what I've read that you really developed your 
your chops initially there and also something else you did in the summers, which is pretty awesome and, and fewer Jewish kids get to do, which was per, uh, performing over a number of summers from a very young age at the Hollywood Bowl, which is one of the great venues we have here in L.A. And uh, I just would be curious how both of those things helped you to, I guess, get used to being in front of an audience. Totally. Um, well, the Hollywood Bowl is kind of the more obvious one in the sense that that was my first gig. The, you know, they did The Music Man uh, and I auditioned to play Winthrop. They came to my theater program and asked if any kids wanted to audition. And my parents let me go in and, you know, I booked the role and I think got bitten immediately by the bug. And I got really lucky in that in the two successive summers after that, they were doing musicals that also had a child that was my age. And I auditioned again and, and booked those roles, too, in, in MAME, playing Young Patrick and in uh, Sound of Music, playing Friedrich. And I think getting to jump immediately professionally to a house that's that iconic and that large, it was kind of like a Band-Aid ripoff moment in the sense that, like, because that was my first exposure to it at an age where I wasn't able to be daunted by the size of it or by the, you know, the the name of the venue for me it was just like oh this is so fun i get to do a huge musical with all these cool adults um <laughs> it, it it sort of it, it set the stage for that fear to kind of subside and for me never to kind of be daunted by size or venue or 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 sort of the 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 scale of a production i i was very used to that so that was really lucky and then as far as camp rama my jewish summer camp it was kind of the one place during the year that I wasn't doing theater, I did do Guys and Dolls in Hebrew there. Uh, when you're in the oldest age group, you get to do a musical in Hebrew. And of course, I did Guys and Dolls in Hebrew. But um, wow. uh, other than that, I I always that was kind of the one place in which I could kind of be a normal kid and, and not really focus on theater. And yet, even in that setting, I learned a lot about you know, trust and forming a family and, and becoming close with the people that you're working with every day and obviously not working at a camp setting, but living with every day. Yes. And, and it, and it, and it um, I don't know, it, it, it made me appreciate the familial aspect of theater that I also try to bring into things like The Politician and any kind of thing I do on camera where I wanted to feel like we are all a community making something together. And that, that feeling, I think I really learned about first and foremost at camp. So from being a thing that you were doing in a professional setting in the summers for a few years. How did we then end up when you're just 11, you're on the road for eight months in a national tour of Carolina Change, which is a, a pretty serious show. Tony Kushner and Janine Tesori, I think. And um, just that's that's suddenly a very serious undertaking, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think I, I had a, a, a youth agent. Her name was Victoria Morris, who, who saw me at the Hollywood Bowl and, and very took me under her wing at a very young age. And, you know, she in Congress with Janet Adderley, who runs the, the youth theater program that I was part of, you know, found this opportunity and, and encouraged me to go in. And, uh, you know, I had heard a lot about Carolina Change from my dad because he Wicked and Caroline were in the same season. And, you know, he obviously has immense respect for Janine and for Tony and also for George Wolf, who's a very, very gifted director who directed, obviously, this production. And so to even go in for the room of, of those of that creative team, it's, it was a no brainer. And then thankfully, it was to play a, a, you know, a somewhat anxious young Jewish boy. And so I wasn't I wasn't that far off. And, and, and um, you know, I, I booked the role and it was an incredibly eye opening ex experience for me in terms of it was the most sort of artistically fulfilling show I had done to that point, given that it was very dramatic and dealing with de dealing with, you know, real human issues. And the character was a really complicated character, not just kind of the kid, the cute kid in the background. He he really had a journey and. 
also getting to work with so many incredible black artists and learn about that style of music and performing and singing and have my eyes open to that world when I had been in a very particular white Jewish bubble to that point was hugely eye-opening, particularly as a musician and just, just being in awe of these black singers. Was this eight times a week? Uh, I was four times a week, so I shared four the times. role because of the rules of age and whatnot with yes. a, a great uh, actor named Cy Adamowski. He was, he was the other. He had covered... Uh, Harrison Chad on Broadway in the role and so he and I shared it uh, on the tour but yeah and then it was also eye-opening I think for my parents who of course had been very supportive up until that point and wanted nothing but to, to let me do what, what made me happy but I think that was the show in which they really saw that I had the affinity and the ability to really make a life out of this. Yeah, I mean, to stick with it for eight months, four, even four times a week is a major <laughs> commitment for an 11-year-old. That's uh, yeah. quite a lot. Um, I was down to miss some of sixth grade. I was willing to give up my second, my second <laughs> sixth grade semester. Yeah, so just plugging along chronologically through the what seemed to me to be the big moments of your life, I want to ask you about something that I don't think you'd publicly talked about until your Radio City special, which now people can watch and should watch on Netflix, and they can get the full version there. But I'm wondering if you can just maybe share, because I guess in some respects, it wasn't that big a moment at all because of the way it was handled. But right. um, it, it was, I'm sure, in hindsight, you know, a, a landmark moment in your timeline. It really was. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't want to give the full story because if no. you haven't watched it, uh, the Radio City special and you're listening, you should definitely go and check it yes, out. Yes. But, um, but yes, you know, I was super, super fortunate. Once again, another kind of uh, aspect of my privilege was the fact that I lived in a community, in a city and in, in a family where, you know, sexuality was, was a non-issue and a non-starter. And I had great representation of, of who a gay man would be from a very early age. My dad worked in the theater and I worked in the theater and theater is made up largely of gay men of all kinds. And so I, I identified immediately with that community and I knew who I was as early as 12 years old and was open about that with my family from the get go. And it just never was an issue. And I, and I, consider that to be a huge part of why I've been able to thrive as an artist at an earlier age is because I, I, you know, I certainly grappled with it in the way that any gay person does in the sense that society's not built for us and it's a very heteronormative situation and there are still ways in which you feel othered. But but, but being in a community and in a family where I was accepted from the get, it, it, it allowed me not to waste too much time worrying about that part of myself and, and allow myself to just grow as an individual and as a human being and as an actor and, and not let that be limiting in any way, but also not be ashamed of it. And so, I, yeah, I, I can, I, I'm incredibly grateful to my parents. And now I'm grateful to have this, this platform that I didn't necessarily anticipate having where I can perpetuate that narrative and say that, like, that's all it really ever needs to be. And, you know, you can play characters that utilize that and characters that tell that particular queer story of yours. Or you can play a con entirely straight character that has nothing to do with you that is British. And, you know, it's it, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I am thrilled that we're seeing particularly queer actors get to play all over the map, whether it's telling their own stories, other queer stories or stories that have nothing to do with their queerness. Um, I think that equilibrium is exciting. Yeah, we just had Janelle Monet on this podcast a few weeks ago, and she was saying it's uh, it's been interesting since she sort of publicly acknowledged her queerness that she, you know, she was saying with Homecoming, which I don't know if you've seen, it's sort of similar to The Politician, which we'll come to in the sense that, yeah, she's playing a queer character, but that's not really what it's about. And exactly. that that's a new development, I guess, in the business. So meanwhile, exactly. for you... You go off to a place called Harvard-Westlake School in Studio mm -hmm. City, which I don't know. I believe it's grades 7 through 12, but were you there for that whole stretch? I stayed at Sinai Kiba, which was my Jewish day school, through 8th grade. And then mm -hmm. I joined Harvard-Westlake in ninth as sort of like a proper four-year high school situation. Well, so here they offer a lot of 
options for people who are interested in music or theater or musical theater. And you seem to have taken advantage of pretty much all of them uh, from what I've read. <laughs> um, I was, yeah, I was, a, I was a busy, I don't think I've ever had a more demanding schedule than when I was in high school. Because <laughs> I and, was in like chamber singers, jazz singers, improv group, you know, musical play, acting class, film class. It's, it was, it was like my, you know, I was, I was in heaven. Well, talk about how you began, I think, to come to be known among your peers as the guy who could lead a musical, for instance, over those years, which I think you did almost every year you were at Harvard Westlake. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've seen interviews where they've gone back to your teachers there who said they, you know, maybe they're lying, but they claim they said (laughs) they saw it. They saw something very special there from uh, something that you did, I think, as a ninth grader in Guys and Dolls, where you met Beanie Feldstein, I think, for the first time, who people will know, uh, right through Pippin as a senior. Just what, how did you evolve during those years? You know, I think I, I, I was really fortunate in that I came in with this experience that I had garnered professionally as a young actor. And so I, I, I had a glimpse of what that world was. And I think, you know, when you're in high school and you're developing into a person, there's so much, there's so much development happening that is so uh, irrelevant to sort of the art you're making or you're growing as an artist. You, there's so much just growing to do as a person and figuring out to do as a person. So to be able to do that in a program like Harvard Westlake's program, where they really treat you as a professional artist and they expect you to treat each other as a professional artist and with the respect of professional artists, it allowed us all the space to not only like accept each other and grow in a really healthy way as people, but also really get used to operating in a professional environment and showing up and doing the work and knowing your lines and learning your music and, 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 and having to rise to the occasion of a role, not just be gifted a role because you're talented, but have to also prove that you're going to back that up with, you know, developing it and working on it and making time for it. And so I think, you know, I, I always did my best in school as I think I still do to kind of let my work and my abilities speak for themselves. And I also feel like I continue to cultivate my love of, like I've said, this kind of familial thing that happens when you make a show. And that is to the nth degree in high school. There was nothing more devastating than, you know, the last performance of Pippin the senior year and, you know, the tears that came after that with all of us together as a cast. And because the families you make on any show are so incredibly special. And then when you're in high school, the, the stakes are just so inordinately high, no matter what, because it's high school. So the families we made there uh, were a really an incredible bond and still some of my very best friends to this day, like Beanie Feldstein, like Catherine Gallagher, like, you know, Nick Lieberman and a lot of people that I met doing these shows and making these families are still my, the closest people to me in the world. And so I think it showed me, uh, apart from just growing me as a professional and as an artist uh, in terms of the talent and the abilities, because I had great teachers and a great program, it also just showed me that not only was I going to make my living in this world and find my, you know, profession here, but also this is where I was going to find my people and my family and, and, and my uh, joy as a human being. And so... I left high school with like a newfound determination that I somewhat already had, but it was even more so to to really make my life in this zone. I think you found something else while you were in high school, too, and that is the music of a couple of guys named Pasek and Paul. Can you true. share just because they would obviously come to play a, a big role in your life? How did you first kind of learn about their existence? 
Well, I knew them from YouTube. Uh, they were kind of the first musical theater YouTube sensation moment. I mean, I'm sure there was others that I'm leaving out and rewriting history and something, but uh, th it was the first one that I knew about. It was the show Edges that they wrote at Michigan. And in the musical theater community, it was this kind of like ripple wave of people whispering about like these guys who were like undergrads writing this amazing musical and it's like cool pop theater sound. And I memorized all those videos. I loved all those videos. And, you know, Beanie Feldstein and Max Sheldon, who are still two of my best friends, and our friend Kelsey Wu at the time decided that we wanted to sing one of the songs from Edges as our senior solo night, uh, like recital performance when you're seniors at our, at our West Hick, you get to do kind of like a last evening of singing. And it's a beautiful song called Like Breathing. It's on YouTube. You can see us singing it. And we loved Pask and Paul because of that. And so that was the first time I had ever heard them or their music. And shortly thereafter, you know, I heard that they were doing this new musical dogfight. Uh, I think about a, a year or two after that, I was maybe 18 or 19. Um, and of course I wanted to go and audition for them for that. And so I did. And I was told all along the way by David Stone and by Pascal Paul that I was much too young to be coming in. But of course I wanted to be in front of Joe Mantello and Pascal Paul. And so I went in and sang for them and of course was deemed too young. Um, but they reached out to me on social media afterwards, Benjamin Justin, and really made it clear that they had connected with me and that they thought I was talented and that they wanted to work with me on something that they were developing in the future. And I didn't think much of that and I was foolish for not thinking much of it because it was <laughs> <laughs> it was a major thing. Yes, and we will uh we'll come to that but I, yes, I yes. think that uh what I want to first cover is the fact that you got accepted to Columbia University. For you this was going to mean moving across the country and starting school there and there were basically it seems like two times where there were false starts in a sense. The first one was because of a movie called Pitch Perfect, which people will be familiar with. And uh, the character you play in that, Benji, this kind of magic-obsessed uh, nerdy guy who turns out to have some great, a great voice, shockingly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I guess, can you talk about why that was deferment number one, and then we'll get to number two after that? Yes. So I was, yeah, so I applied early to Columbia. I knew that I wanted to, all of my siblings before me had gone to Penn and both of my parents went to Penn. So it, uh, there was already some sort of kind of diverging from the path by not going to Penn, but I knew that I would need to still go to, or at least attempt to go to a four-year college because my parents are obviously huge proponents of education. And given that I didn't have a particular job to start, I, I, I was also very much interested in going and, and educating myself the way all my friends were. And while my while my desire was still very much to become a performer and an actor and and keep that as my career, I, I knew that there was a way to juggle both things. And so I was all ready to go. I was accepted early. And in August, like early August before I was set to go, I the audition for Pitch Perfect came through and you know, I, I grappled with whether or not to do it. And, you know, I talked to my parents and my representation about it. And it was hard to really tell what it was going to be. But because it was a studio film, it was universal, it had music elements, it was the age range was right. It, it was just a too, too kind of big of an opportunity to pass up. So I went in kind of blind and auditioned for the casting directors, Barden and Schnee, and then was brought back in to audition for Elizabeth Banks and her husband, Max, and then a third time for Elizabeth Max and the director, Jason Moore. And I think I just immediately clicked with the character and something happened where it just made sense and the rhythms were the same and are we, ha we had a, the same name too, strangely. And, yes. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I booked it about two weeks before I was supposed to leave for Columbia and I had a talk with my parents and we all agreed that it was something special and something I needed to do. And there was, there was nothing taboo about taking a gap year. It was a very familiar trope 
uh, since a lot of my friends were doing the same thing for varied reasons. Uh, so I just deferred my acceptance for a year and I went and shot the movie, took all of my duffels that were already packed for school and just took them to Baton Rouge, Louisiana instead and, and made the film. And, and it turned into something people really loved. Now everybody knows I've got the magic in me. And I guess just to jump backwards for a second, you mentioned that you had representation and that you were auditioning in the first place. I think for some of the young actors who may be listening, just was that an ordeal just even to go from being a talented high school kid who's done, you know, you'd already obviously performed in big places and done some great things on the road with the tour, national tour and Hollywood Bowl and all of that. But how did screen acting even enter the picture? So, yeah, so I put on a uh, sort of, Somewhat embarrassing, but actually very productive. Uh, senior little cabaret of my own, like solo show at the end of high school. I put it up in a tiny theater in Culver City on my own as sort of an extracurricular activity because I wanted to, I don't know, I felt like I needed kind of a culminating experience of all that I'd learned as a performer and an opportunity to showcase myself the way that I would if I was in a conservatory, which Harvard Westlake is not. And so, you know, I put on this little cabaret that is sort of, there are little seeds of what is now the show that I do at Radio City. Obviously, it's now my own music, but but in terms of the storytelling and the structure, it's kind of where that was born. And I invited, you know, any representation that I knew to invite and, and, and people that I wanted to, you know, connect with. And that kind of acted as, that's where I met Heather Reynolds, who's my manager. And, and that is kind of was the next step to translating all that had happened during high school into something uh, real. Um, and then, of course, again, you know, it, I would be remiss not to acknowledge the privilege that comes along with a, my father being a producer who works at Universal and, you know, knowing that that film was even being made and being made aware of the film in, in general and knowing that I had to get myself in there to, to, to audition for it. Um, so, it was, yeah, it's kind of an amalgam of right place, right time uh, and being prepared for the right place at the right time. And had screen acting specifically always been a kind of hope of yours or was that just sort of the way it came came about? It certainly was definitely something I wanted to expand into. My my kind of gut passion has always been live performance, both in terms of playing my own music and in terms of musical theater. But I always knew that that's, that's something I wanted to to stretch myself into. It was the thing that scared me the most, I think, which I, I think is maybe not true for a majority of my peers. I think generally there's something more terrifying to people about the, the live theater and the unedited nature of that. But for me, I always found putting my performance in the hands of a filmmaker or an editor way scarier than just going out on stage and doing what I want to do. And also I, in terms of my ability to do it and my affinity for it, it hadn't been confirmed or, you know, validated in the way that my ability as a performer on stage has been. So it was definitely a terrifying thing to do, but I, I think I knew that if I pushed myself to experience it and, and to get better at it and to grow at it as early on as possible, that I could eventually arrive at the point where it felt as second nature or as comfortable in my bones as performing on stage. And I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm entirely there yet. There's still, you know, I'm still learning and growing as an actor on screen, but I certainly do feel like because I, as a teenager started right off the bat, adding that into the mix, it does feel uh, more organic to me than it would have at this time. So that was the first year that you would have been at college. You do the movie, you go presumably, I guess, back to LA and then I think you actually did literally start at Columbia for a, a short period of time when the Book of Mormon suddenly enters the picture. So uh, this had started on Broadway in 2011, 
and was obviously a phenomenon with Andrew Reynolds and Josh Gad. You were now, how did you wind up basically stepping into the part that Josh Gad originated on Broadway first in Chicago and then on Broadway yourself? Sure. So I, you know, I was a fan of the show, like many people were at the time. And um, I, I was just a fan of being on Broadway in general. And that's all I had ever really wanted. And so I, you know, I had worked the remainder of that gap year I spent doing, I did a play at Vassar and I did a, a play at Barrington Stage Company and sort of was still doing theater all the way up till it was time to go to school. And then I went and I started for about a month. And then in October, uh, the audition came in for Book of Mormon. And I thought, you know, this role has been played by Josh Gad and by a lot of people that are very much in the school of Josh Gad in terms of both physically and as, as performers. They were really sticking to that type of guy. And so I figured the risk was pretty low going in. I thought, well, this will just introduce me to Trey and Matt and to Casey Nicola and to, you know, Scott Rudin. And it'll be an opportunity to just get in the mix with them. But I had no way expected to be actually part of the show because I just was much younger and much different looking and, and a different vibe than everybody else going in. And I kept getting called back and, and my version of the character was getting well received and they were laughing and they were enjoying it. And I got to hone it over the course of a few callbacks and really figure out what my take was. And, you know, I, I got really lucky in that they wanted to take a chance on me and allow me to kind of reinvent it in a way. Often when you're creating a tour or a new production of a pre-existing Broadway company, it's a lot about the formula and recreating that formula. And so for them to believe in my talent and have faith in me as a performer enough to fuck with that, excuse me, mess with that. You, no, you can um, say whatever you want on this podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's, it's quarantines doing this to me. Um, you know, <laughs> enough to screw with it, we'll say. Yes. Um, I really appreciate it. It was a huge, I mean, it was, a, it was scary because I had a lot to live up to, but it really gave me a vote of confidence that I hadn't had yet as a performer that I was able to make my own individual choices and have those be admired and, 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 and really work in a pre-existing formula. So it was a no-brainer that it was. I had to leave school to do it. It was just too big of an opportunity, particularly because I was given the opportunity to create a new company because we were starting from scratch in Chicago and we were going to be directed by Casey and Trey and the original creative team. And to have the opportunity to build it from the ground up and also be reviewed in Chicago, it was just, it, it, it was too special of an opportunity not to do it. Uh, and of course, I harbored the hope that if it all went well, I'd be able to then replace on Broadway. And thankfully, all of that did come to fruition. And, you know, my co-star Nick Rillo and I got to move together and do it uh, on Broadway for a year as well. think that the big day of your Broadway debut, I believe, was January 7th, 2014. And I wonder if you can kind of take yourself back, take us back to, you know, what was the realization of, as you said, uh, you know, it'd been a short lifetime up to that point and still has been. But I mean, it's a lifelong dream. So now you, you get out there with all the excitement, I would imagine, and pressure and everything that comes with that. What was what do you remember of that night? I mean, yeah, it it had been, you know, 11, 12 years or so that I had been wanting to, this to happen. And I felt, you know, even though I was young, I felt uh, really overwhelmed that it, it had arrived. And I it, it feels like a real blur to me that the little I remember like little fragments. I, I remember seeing, you know, in, in the lobby of every Broadway theater, there's these strips of cardboard in this large board that just list everybody's in the company's names in alphabetical order. And so it'll show you like who's conducting, who's out, all that stuff. And um 
I remember seeing my name on that and that being like a really surreal thing to see. I remember seeing my name in the playbill. I remember seeing my name on the little uh, one sheet poster outside under the Book of Mormon. And, you know, I remember my parents coming back and seeing my dressing room and just the little kind of checkpoints and landmarks of like what you expect it to be. Um, and then I really, the show itself, I just, I, I was, it was so much of a blur and too much of an excitement that I don't really remember doing it. And I now remember really regretting that I don't remember moment to moment of that show. And moving forward from that point in my life, I always made it a point to try to drop into myself in those moments that are larger than life, like the Tonys or the opening night of Evan Hansen or, you know, the Radio City Music Hall show. Uh, that that night, kind of missing that night and allowing myself to black out, really made me focus on being present for the for the nights that came after and 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 appreciate those experiences and not let them be lost on me because of all the adrenaline and then the rush and and just make sure that I can keep them with me. But yeah, it was it was a one big blur of year on Broadway now. And we, I'll just say that Ben Brantley of the New York Times, who can be not. Nice. Was very nice <laughs> about your performance. He said it was sensational in describing your performance. And I do have to, I, you, you mentioned playbills, which just brings me back to a little tidbit, a kind of full circle moment, I would guess for you that I had read about where, uh, how did you celebrate your bar mitzvah? Can we, can we? <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. Well, I'm, I'm living in my childhood room now and, and I have a bunch of the centerpieces still in there, but it's, uh, of course it was musical theater themed bar mitzvah and each of the centerpieces was like a big 3D playbill of a different musical. And so, of course, I was at the Wicked table. So, yeah, playbills and that whole theater culture was 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 in my bones. And so, yeah, to see myself in a real one was was pretty wild. So, as you said, you wrapped up with uh, Book of Mormon January 4th, 2015. Somewhere in there, you did a sequel to Pitch Perfect and uh, Ricky and the Flash, where you get to share the screen with Meryl Streep, which must have been quite a thing. <laughs> Absolutely wild. Totally wild. And I got to work with the late, great, great, great Jonathan Demi, who is just yes. a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, and I, I, I cherish that I got to spend a week on his set. Um, but yeah, I got to do a scene opposite Meryl and just, I it was completely terrified. That, definitely more scared <laughs> doing that than I've ever been on any kind of stage. <laughs> well, uh, and she was nice. Oh, the, the most wonderful, generous, warm, human being you can't be that big of a legend and that extraordinary of an actor and like extraordinary at taking on other people's skins without being a, an extraordinary person and she, she right. absolutely is january again january 2015 is when you're done with book of mormon when did you know how you'd started to tell the story of how pasek and paul first reconnected with you uh, you know we've got to find something we're gonna we're gonna find something to do together how did you first hear about what that thing might be so Benj and Justin came to see me in Book of Mormon. I remember particularly hanging out with Benj after he came to see me. And, you know, after they saw that performance, I think it kind of reinforced for them that I was, you know, some someone exciting and someone that they had remembered from before. And they had a first workshop of their piece coming up and they asked me to to read. They just kind of invited me in without any pre predisposition to, to just see what that would be like. And all I knew about it was that they had written the score and that Michael Greif who is a legendary musical theater director who directed Rent and Next to Normal and Grey Gardens was the director and that this really, really talented playwright, Stephen Levinson, was going to be the book writer. And so it was called The Untitled PPL Project. And they said, we're not going to tell you anything about the story or the character or the music. You're just going to come in and we're going to read it cold and we'll see what happens. So obviously I was quite terrified because I wanted to do right by all these people and work with them. Uh, and I had no idea if I'd even be right for the character or what it was. And so I just, we sat down and opened it up. And on that very first day, we already had 
Rachel Bay Jones, Michael Park, Jennifer Laura Thompson were all already present. And we just started reading this this show. And, and apart from realizing immediately that, wow, this is a special piece and this is something unlike anything I've ever seen, I also felt immediately a kinship with the character of Evan. And I felt like my humor and Stephen Levinson's humor really lined up. And I felt like my singing style really lined up with Pascal Paul's music. And I felt that my you know, process as an actor in terms of the organic nature of it was really lined up with what Michael loves to do. And it all just felt very synergistic in terms of like, this is the right person for the right project. Um, and so it was kind of irrevocable. On that point on, we just developed it hand in hand and um, it turned into something great. Did I read that? I mean, I, I, I read conflicting things. The one thing that I've, I know from talking to you when we did our roundtable that Tony season when it was all happening for uh for you there that the voice the vocals and even i think some of the dialogue and just mannerisms or whatever i think were tailored certainly the vocals to you for evan hansen but was there ever something about the suggestion that you would be initially that you would be jared the the best friend the the friend (laughs) who's kind of abusive towards evan I've gotten conflicting stories about this. My understanding is that there was one initial conversation where they were first casting the workshop and my name came up via Pascal Paul as someone to be Evan because they were the most familiar with me. And then I think other people on the creative team, the discussion became, well, he's playing, you know, Elder Cunningham and Book of Mormon. Isn't that more of a Jared? Isn't he playing kind of more of the geeky Jewish guy? Why don't we have him do that? And just, you know, Pascal Paul really saying like, you know, let's, I think, you know, let's, let's see him in this, in this main role first. And, and I think, you know, but I don't know the ins and outs of it, but uh, you know, I think it happened the way it was supposed to. And then obviously Roland was fantastic as well. So you guys initially, you had a reading in 2014, I guess, then DC for uh, about a month and a, or six weeks, maybe uh, in 2015. And then just to keep, you know, so people can follow the chronology off Broadway, March 26, 2016 to May 29th, 2016 and Broadway, November 14th, 2016 to November 19th, 2017. So this was a large chunk of your life that you were involved with this. And I guess one of the the key challenges I would imagine with figuring out how to play this guy would have been, you know, he's done a, pr- he does a pretty bad thing. And yet the audience still has to kind of root for him to be okay. How did you figure out how to navigate that as a, in, in your performance? I think it's, it's, it's a, it's an excellent question. You know, I think I've, you know, I've started to think about this a little bit again, now that we're discussing maybe making a film adaptation and things like that. So I, I, I think it was a lot about a, I had the luxury of this beautiful score and of these songs where you're getting to see Evan's insides and really see his soul and understand him on a different level, sort of different plane than just, you know, speaking and, that immediately allows an audience to feel like they know you and they they love you, and even if you are doing morally ambiguous things. Secondly, I wanted to make sure that at every turn, Evan was, you know, an exposed nerve ending in the sense that he you you saw exactly how he was feeling and reacting to every decision he was making, and you never felt like he was doing something you didn't understand. So even if he's making a decision or or perpetuating the lie in a moment where you're like, oh, please don't, no, Evan, don't, like, why? You can see, you know, either in the way that he's, you know, sitting or the way that he's standing or the way that he's fidgeting or the way that he's crying or the way that he's looking away, why he has to do what he has to do. I think if you start to feel like you don't understand what's going on in his head, you start to lose him and the audience starts to turn against him. So for me, it was all about being an emotionally closed book to the other characters in the show and an emotionally open book to the audience. Step out, step out of the sun because you've learned, because you've learned. 
You mentioned the physical demands of this and, you know, the posture, your posture was certainly not what it normally is. Uh, your the, the constant fidgeting, the, and then, you know, what a lot of other actors and musical theater people like Neil Patrick Harris and others have marveled at the most in some way is to be able to sing beautifully while literally through tears and then sobbing and crying and all of that. And uh, I guess I want to ask you how you endured the physicality of that part for as long as you did and also mentally just where you go to be able to dredge that up eight times a week for such a long period of time. Sure. You know, I think it, I had the luxury of, like you said, working on this project for many years and developing it for many years. And so it, the character became so ingrained in me and so second nature to me and, and, and particularly his physicality just felt very second nature once I had figured out really what it was. And I also had the help of an extraordinary voice teacher that I still work with to this day named Liz Kaplan, who really helped me to put the notes into my body and learn this, learn the notes and the technique in that posture and get used to having to put those things together, not always singing as myself and then just expecting it to work in, as Evan. Uh, she really helped me emphasize how to combine those things and particularly with the crying, how to be as technically prepared as possible for the moment so that when the emotion does come and when that has to be the focus, you can rely on your kind of autopilot of your technique to be there for you. But yeah, I think it, it just was a learning curve of like having a, a workshop to have it enter my body and then do it in DC and have that be a, okay, this is what it's like to do a production and then have off Broadway. This is what it's like to do a New York production. And then finally, when we got to Broadway, it was a familiar enough experience that it didn't feel so daunting. But certainly the length of the run was the most intense of any of the stages that we'd had up to that point. And so mentally it was about, it was about, I think, preserving myself in any way I possibly could for the other 21, 22 hours of the day uh, in terms of sleep and eating well and seeing friends and staying calm and watching funny TV and funny movies and, and, and being outside in the sun and just making sure that I was filling myself up as a person so that I could then use those two hours to really go to the places that were necessary. And I also felt that because we were seeing the way young people have been affected by the story and the way that it was really changing the trajectory of people's lives when they were coming into the space, into the theater, and then leaving, having different conversations with their parents or with their siblings or with their friends. That was such a motivation to me that was like, it is worth it for you to kind of take yourself to this darkness and to this emotionally, you know, a vulnerable place and, you know, have uncomfortable, you know, not entirely emotionally healthy moments because look what it's bringing and look what it's doing. And I think... You know, in looking forward at a possible film adaptation, I have a similar feeling where it's like, you know, there's all sorts of things about that, that that make me afraid about returning to that place mentally and emotionally. And also just in terms of the superficial practicality of like playing a character that I've already played and, you know, not wanting to beat a dead horse, that kind of thing. And am I too old? And, you know, should we get a real teenager and you know all this stuff? But, you know, at the end of the day, after all these worries kind of cycle through my anxious mind, the, the thing that I'm left with is. I want, you know, millions of kids to be able to watch this in a day. You know, I, if, if there ever was a film of this, more kids could see this story in a week than have ever seen the show on, on stage. And so for me, that is so much more important than any of the other stuff that would come along with it. Um, and so, you know, here's hoping.
just a uh, a quick follow up because I think fans might be curious to know this, as am I. What was your favorite song to perform on that during from that amazing score, and what was the hardest song? to perform from that amazing score, given all that we've talked about in physicality. Sure. My favorite song was If I Could Tell Her uh, to Sing. It's it's a kind of a beautiful song stylistically. It's kind of in a pop place that I love to sing, and that's uh, uh, where a lot of my own music kind of sits. But more so, you know, up until that point, Evan's living a very uh, uh, intense track in the show. He's had a lot of big moments emotionally and big... Uh, production number, you know, Wave Me Through a Window and If I Could, or uh, For Forever. And If I Could Tell Her is the first point in the show in which it's like a very, there's a lot of stasis and it's just him and, and my dear friend Laura Dreyfus together alone on stage. And the song is very gentle and he gets to just sing it to her and tell the story. And there's not a lot of uh, heaviness. So I always loved, looked forward to that moment. The most difficult, it's hard not to say words fail. That's the obviously kind of like the aria at the end of the show where Evan finally admits everything he's done. And it involves, you know, there's a lot of crying written into the piece. And so it just involves an emotional intensity that is necessary for the audience to continue to love Evan and to see why he's gone through all this and why he's been doing all of this. And difficult on a technical level, of course, for the obvious reasons, but also just difficult in terms of carrying the weight of the show's crux on your shoulder and knowing that if this moment doesn't land, this final arrival, this final number, then it's all kind of been for naught. So... Do you have a specific thing that you do reflexively to become emotional or what do you think about? It's a combination, I think, and it, it would vary uh, on different days. It's all it's a very different experience doing it on camera, I find. Like in The Politician, when I needed to be emotional, that's much more about putting myself in a particular place personally in terms of using, you know, music that's going to be evocative to me, listening to it in my ears or, you know, thinking about personal memories, things like that, because it's such an immediate thing that only needs to happen once. But when you're trying to recreate it, you know, eight times a week, you have to find different avenues because you're not always going to be in the same position every time. So there would be, you know, nights where it, I could rely entirely on the score and the story and my fellow actors to just live in the reality of that. And that would take me to the necessary places. There were nights where it was, you know, I needed to rely a little bit more on a personal, you know, memory or or of my own anxieties, my own vulnerabilities and lean a little bit more on Ben than Evan. And then there are nights where it was a nice kind of happy medium. There were a few random nights where it just was an entirely physical muscle memory experience where I just let it happen. It, it really became a, a varied experience. And I think that's kind of the only way I was able to say sane is that I, 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 I had a couple different ways to get in there. I didn't always have to rely on the kind of self-afflicted pain of it right, I, could, right. I, could, I had other i had other uh, avenues last question about that period uh mm -hmm. take me through june 11th 2017 when after many months of everyone noting how great you had been but also and you know and telling you that you're gonna win the tony but then you know it hasn't happened yet so i'm sure there's a certain uncomfortableness because it hasn't, you know, you're, they're saying something's going to happen, but you've got to see if it's going to happen and all of that. I mean, you'd won every other award I think that existed uh, almost for, for this great work and including the, the, I was there for the drama league when the distinguished performance award, that's something they give once in a lifetime. You won it <laughs> as the, at 23, the youngest person ever to win it, but to go in on Tony's night, 
to personally win, to have your show win Best Musical. I, w- I went back and watched the clips of those moments, which I was present for, and it was very powerful to to see you experiencing it. What was it like to experience them? Very special. I mean, first and foremost, the fact that my whole family was there together was kind of the the, the greatest part of it all. The fact that we all got to go and, and experience that dream in tandem, you know, awards any awards tony's included is a tricky thing there's a lot of politics involved there's a lot of you know imperfections in terms of the people that are being included there's a lot of privilege involved and and being white and and you know there's a lot of parts of it that are out of my control and so for me you know obviously in terms of the the title of tony there there's such a, a dream that comes along with that of growing up as a kid watching them at home and the, loving the musical theater community so that aspect of it was was beautiful and to win was you know something i'll never forget but for me it was really more about the community feeling that this was a moment that i had earned and that this was something that i had worked really hard for and so really going into the night i i felt that i was really going to be okay either way because i knew that that the people that I respected and the other artists in the community around me felt that my performance was something to be celebrated. And I, and so regardless of what had happened, I knew that that was the feeling in the room. And so that, that really filled me up more than anything. And then just getting to have this, you know, the moment with the speech and everything is that was special. And that was kind of the cherry on the cake, but it was, it was really feeling that I had arrived in that community and was respected in a certain way that that was the ultimate gift. So that was really, I guess the bookend, at least for now of the, of the, Evan Hansen experience. And I want to mm-hmm. ask you, coming out of that, you came out of that a very different person than you went into it years earlier, I'm sure. And certainly in the respect that you were more a, a much more well-known person, a person who had to deal with that aspect of life, and also a person who now had to figure out how you follow such a triumphant success, which I would think could be daunting as well. Yes. That may may lead us. I'd, I'd be curious how you were, what your state of mind was as that ended and and how the next chapter, which I guess we could we could uh, call the Ryan Murphy chapter, enters the picture. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I certainly felt all of those things. And in addition to feeling like I, you know, I had been so career focused and 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 really really working myself to the bone for Evan Hansen, rightfully so. And I, I was more than happy to make the sacrifice for such an extraordinary project. But I had really kind of quieted down the rest of the aspects of my life in the sense that I wasn't investing very much in, in you know, who was I as a person and who was I as an artist outside of this character because I had to be so focused on it. So for me, the initial reaction and the initial necessity was to start working on my own music because I felt like I had gotten to a point in a musical sense where I was ready to voice my own perspective, voice my own point of view. I had learned enough about the creative process of making music from Pascal Paul and from all of these musical theater composers that I was ready to see what my voice sounded like in that regard, stylistically and in terms of the content. And so that, I think the most healing first step for me was, was, was investing in that because it really felt like, you know, Evan or no Evan, I can really figure out who I am. And then on top of that, I think that the other really pressing sort of career want and desire that I had was to find a vehicle that allowed me to have similar breadth of character and show a similar range of ability that was on camera so that I could start cultivating that that world and 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 show that I had the ability to translate what I had done on stage into that um, universe and I got very lucky in that Ryan Murphy was one of the many people who came to see Evan Hansen and 
of course, I had an extraordinary amount of respect for him in terms of the stories that he chooses to tell and the characters he creates, you know, be them queer or non-queer. And he expressed, you know, a real interest in me. And I was more than willing to hear out whatever he wanted to work on, you know, whether he's going to bring me on to American Horror Story or whatever it was going to be. I was like, whatever <laughs> you want to discuss, I'm, I'm game. And that's yeah. kind of what I expected going in was that I'd be a guest on something or, uh, but we had a meal and he, you know, he came in with a very clear vision inspired by something that they had always wanted to make. He, Brad and Ian had always wanted to make something about uh, sort of grounded in politics and satirizing and skewering the like sort of white privileged class of, of people that generally get involved in politics. And then combined with the way that he had been inspired by me and my performance in Evan Hansen, those things kind of synthesized into this idea of the politician. And he came to me with a very clear vision of the character and how he would be a, a very different character from Evan in terms of his confidence and his hubris and his ability to stand up straight and and command attention and and be selfish and arrogant and but still utilizing the things that allowed me to infuse Ben into Evan in terms of the vulnerability and the music and the humanity and he was very smart in allowing me to do a 180 as an actor while still maintaining the things that make uh, me me which is why for me it was obviously a no-brainer I mean it would have been anyway he could have offered me anything I probably would have been like great you're Ryan Murphy let's go <laughs> but that, that's what made it a no-brainer to be something I was willing to really lead the lead the ship on and in addition to him offering me the position of an executive producer where I felt like I could start to understand what it meant to have creative ownership in a camera an on-camera setting in the way that I did feel like I understood on, on stage and I really felt like I understood the craft of making a piece of theater in a way that I don't understand uh, making television or film and so to have a seat behind the table as a producer really allowed me to, to feel like this was a, a, the really uh, necessary next step in getting as comfortable in that zone as I was on, uh, on stage and it turned out pretty great and he brought a lot of great people on to do it with me. Yes and I know that I think it's people who maybe haven't seen it haven't seen Evan Hansen because they couldn't be in New York or whatever, they should know that uh, Laura Dreyfus was your co-star in that. I know that you've said that that's just, that was not, that was Ryan. Entirely Ryan. Yeah. That was magical because it was like, you know, Laura and I fell very much in love, you know, as friends doing, doing Dear Evan Hansen. And we've, we we're very close buddies and, I, she had been on Glee for Ryan and Brad and Ian already, and they adored her. They basically written her a role in that instance when she came in for a different role because they loved her so much. And so I knew that they would bring her in and I didn't want to jinx anything. So I didn't really say anything during the casting process and kind of let that happen naturally. And, you know, sure enough, she came in for McAfee and immediately made it to the testing and just blew everybody out of the water and, and booked it entirely on her own. And we just got really lucky that we got to work together back to back. Yeah, and there are a, a lot of really great other up-and-coming young actors who you're surrounded with here. I think one yes. who you went to bat to bring in because you have very good taste is <laughs> Zoe Deutsch, who yes. we've had on this podcast and I know you're very close with now. And uh, she was, I think, a person you did suggest. Anyway, you now, for the first time, are leading a screen project, are first on the call sheet, and it sounds like you embraced that in the sense that I don't know if you saw this as part of the responsibility of the of being a producer as well or just the way you naturally like to work. But you kind of rallied this group of the younger cast members to become very close, right? Certainly. Yeah. Like I said, uh, you know, I, my favorite part about anything, sort of my favorite part about doing this in general, you know, is creating little families and having that experience of, of, of a bond and something that we're making together. And that's a team effort that we can all invest in. And 
an experience because you never know what something's going to become or what the, the way something's going to be received critically or financially or anything. So the only surefire thing about the experience is making the process something special and worth having. And, and the way to do that is to create a family. And so I, you know, as soon as we had all these amazing actors cast and obviously Zoe, who I had really, you know, been been so passionate about her being in it. I just knew that was her role and she was absolutely brilliant. And, and Ronnie Jones, who was a brand new discovery, who's just brilliant and Theo Germain. And as soon as we had everybody on board, I, I, I really made it a point to find moments for us to bond and spend time together and have activities together and, you know, really get to know each other, especially because we we're making a show where we weren't always given the opportunity to work as a group all together. It was a lot of piecemeal relationships kind of uh, off of Evan's, spoking off of Evan's wheel. Um, I mean, excuse me, Evan, that's a Freudian slip, Peyton. Um, <laughs> Peyton's wheel. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I, you know, that's my favorite part of any experience. And I figured because there are so many aspects of the producerial role that are going to be more than covered by the Titans that are Brad, Ian and Ryan, I wanted to find the lane in which I could really put that title to good use. And for me, that was making sure that people felt taken care of and to be liaison between the creatives and the cast and to make sure that everybody felt part of one family. And we still are very much have a, a lot of affection for each other and really love each other. And that's what made the experience worth having, I think. And it was always the case. It was always understood from the beginning that, this was a guy, your character, Peyton, who's going to be at very different stages of his life from year to year to year, from season yes. to season to season? Yes. The idea was always to uh, have the first season be a bit of a backstory, a bit of an exposition. Like, this is how this kind of, you know, monster, amazing person, whatever you'd like to call him, was born. And then seeing that grow into a real politician or quote unquote you know, in this universe that's slightly fantastical, a real politician. Um, uh, so yeah, the, the, that was also appealing to me too, was getting to play him at different stages and, and showing his growth over time. And, you know, when you do a film, you have to leave a character so quickly and kind of release him into the world. But uh, getting to do a, kind of a consistent television experience where you get to grow in, into the character and continue getting more and more comfortable in his skin, that felt akin to theater to me in a really comforting way. So yeah, there's, there's obviously a lot of talk about doing a third season when we've all got, gotten a little bit older, um, so that we can be a little bit more realistic about the election that, that theoretically is next. If you've watched the end of season two, yes. you'll know what election that is. Yes. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was really fun to be totally kind of youthful and passionate and, and naive in Peyton's way as a high schooler for season one and, and emotionally raw. And then season two, allow him to start to mature and close up some of those dams and grow into himself a, a bit more. And as somebody who had you know, you'd been in Pitch Perfect, which had a big audience. But I mean, when you you primarily, even when you worked on a project like Evan Hansen for years and you're on stage, there's a limited number of people who can consume that. Was it yes. a kind of a shock to the system to see how quickly you put something on Netflix and it's, it's a everywhere. whole different ballgame, right? <laughs> yeah, it was wild. I mean, it was it was scary in terms of like thinking about that in a macro sense but then but the micro of just you know all these people being exposed to you and also to all of your friends who have made this thing that we're really proud of it's just it's just incredibly exciting and it's gratifying and um you get to connect with people from walks of life that you just ever would in terms of like their you know brazilian fans and german fans and you know people that people that get exposed to you that 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 netflix allows for that kind of i don't know platform is it's, it's very exciting and particularly when it's something that you're proud for people to see which i know is not always the case and of course there are still things about it that i cringe at and takes <laughs> i wish i had done better and moments i wish i had been you know made different choices but Overall, it's it's something I'm really proud is out there. So it mostly was just a really wonderful experience. Just briefly, I know that you had uh, obviously this other 
endeavor with with in partnership with Netflix, and that was this great Ben Platt live at Radio City Music Hall special mm-hmm. variety special, which I rewatched last night, and I I really have enjoyed a lot. And I guess the origin of that was basically that you signed with Atlantic Records while you were doing the cast album, I think, for uh, Evan Hansen. That was in 2017, I think. Your album comes out in 2019, a month after the video for the song Ease My Mind, which you had done. That was sort of your public coming out in a sense. You came out of nowhere And you cut through Then the album comes out in in March of 2019, I believe, and and so by the time you were recording this special at Radio City in May, I believe, you had a a lot of people that were singing along to your new music and were totally with you for the entire hour and a half, not because they had seen you in Evan Hansen or anything else necessarily on stage, but this was about you and your music. That must have been kind of cool it was yeah to it was say very, the least yeah it was <laughs> it was very surreal and you know i i have so much pride for a lot of the things i've been fortunate enough to make but there's some i feel a, a very special you know ultimate amount of, of pride uh, and gratitude for this radio city special because it really feels like me if there's so much of myself in it and i feel like i i am portrayed really authentically in it, and i really feel like it, it expresses who i am and both musically and personally and in, in terms of my perspective and I, I to to have that on a platform that's as wide as something like the politician is just incredibly gratifying and yeah i mean i the way that people responded to the music and the way that it started to mean something to people the way that i had seen musicals mean something to me as a kid and you know have these pop songs and these stories and these these tunes and melodies, you know, really become part of people's daily lives enough so that they wanted to come watch me sing them live and sing along with me. It's, it's a very humbling experience and it helps me to realize that, you know, as much as I love and value being part of other people's visions and helping other people create what they see for themselves on stage or on camera and being a cog in that greater wheel and, and being part of a family like that, which is such an exciting and special thing to do, I also really want to continue to invest in, you know, my own perspective and my own creative vision and my own words and thoughts and and my own writing. And it was just a very kind of scary jump off the cliff moment. And then ultimately really, really validating to to, to do that on such a a large scale and have it really be effective and and, and emotionally important for people. Um, I I certainly was a life-changing thing. I want to keep With our last minute, I just want to do something what we call rapid fire, if that's all right. Just the first sentence that comes to you. Um, Did you keep any Dear Evan Hansen arm casts? Yes, I have like six of them. I have like Hillary Clinton signed one. I have the (laughs) opening night. I have the Tony's cast. I have my Today Show cast. And I have uh, one more. That's awesome. Uh, 
Do you imagine that you might return to Broadway anytime soon? Yes, 100%. I'm, you know, Broadway's in a pretty dire state right now, and I hope when it comes back and gets back on its feet, I, I, I'm raring to come back. I'm very, very, very eager to come back. In terms of the Dear Evan Hansen movie, which we've sort of talked about, there has been there have been these rumors that we're pretty close to confirming something. I know your dad, I believe, acquired the film rights so that that's possible. Gun to your head. Is this going to happen? I hope so. I mean, I yeah. just COVID changes every day, so it's so yeah. hard to know. But if if there's a way to do it safely, I don't see why not. La La Land was a great movie that your dad produced and with Pasek and Paul. I don't know if that's just uh, if, who knew who first, but it's a fantastic, fantastic movie. Where were you on Oscar night when all that insanity happened with the envelope? And what were you thinking? Uh, I was home in New York watching with a bunch of friends and it was a beautiful night up until that point. And, uh, you know, La La Land is, is an extraordinary film, as is Moonlight. And it was it was just a really tough, horrible experience to watch my father have to go through that yes yes merrily we roll along is going to be something that we're going to have to buckle up for about 18 years i think before <laughs> we get to see it but uh you and beanie are, are doing this with richard linklater how far along is that at this point we're essentially at square one and unfortunately covid has really put a a, a delay on it but uh we're all committed to the long run so as soon as we can recoup after all of this gets uh, a little bit safer then i have i still have faith that we'll get it uh, get it made someday and it's essentially going to be like nine shoots over those years is that right or is it yeah exactly yeah if you will follow the exact timeline of the musical if you want to go wikipedia it you can see how yes. long how many years the musical takes place over we're going to follow that exactly and last question you know in 26 years, you've you've accomplished a heck of a lot. Is there what is the biggest item on the bucket list that you have not yet gotten to achieve? Oh, man, there's so many things I would love to do. I think that the, the three that immediately come to my mind just right now are playing the Hollywood Bowl with my own music as kind of a full circle thing, because that's the first house I ever played. So I would love to get to play my own concert there. Two would be to do a, a a play on Broadway that is has no music, that isn't a musical, and just focus on the live performance as an actor and, and have that experience. And the third would be to direct a piece of theater. I think that eventually I would really love to, you know, I, I, I started, my very first forays were directing musicals in my backyard. So I think I, it's, it's inevitable that I will return to that at some point. Well, congrats on all the success. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, My pleasure. Thank you. Can't wait to see what's next. Hopefully we get back out there so you can get back to business. <laughs> yes, from your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, take care. Thanks again, Ben. Thanks, dude. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.